tonight on It's a Filthy Goddamn Horror Show. It's always a little depressing to hear about the the blight that is early American history, the power of, of white people thinking they can just take things away. So what I want to do today is just pop that little balloon, burst that bubble for people, and demystify the word Croatoan. One of the most iconic and influential horror movies of all time. Just like showed up on the scene like, we got it from here. I've really been toying with birth horror, pregnancy horror. Croatoan is a monster played by none other than William Shatner. You're not really the monster type. Maybe it's depends who you ask. I feel like you're watching a, a totally different movie and then like you're reminded like, oh yeah, she's pregnant with like a car baby. Welcome to It's a Filthy Goddamn Horror Show, a trivia variety show for and by American Horror Story fans where we take a sidewinding journey through topics inspired by episodes of American Horror Story. This is The Light at the End of My Tunnel, Nathan Skethway. And this is former altar boy, Monique Quistorf. Not a lie. <laughs> so during this episode of Murder House, birth, I believe it's called. Sure is. Vivian gives birth. Yes. <laughs> and this entire season, I've really been toying with like birth horror, pregnancy horror. I even tried to, to find something about specifically uh, being pregnant with the Antichrist niche subgenre of horror. Indeed. That didn't take me very far. But this has given me the perfect opportunity to really look at how pregnancy and birth has been portrayed in horror throughout at least recent history. I'm I'm not going I'm not going into any like Shakespearean, <laughs> you know, Renaissance like we're not we're not touching base in any of those things if there is any. I'm I'm thinking about more recent time. Starting with in the 1950s, a movie called No Man of Her Own, which was directed by Mitchell Leeson. Lyson? See, me and names, I feel like it could just be a thing that I just don't know names <laughs> I, at this point. That's just how I feel. If it's German, it's Lysen. But if it's anything but German, it's Lysen. Lysen. Wow. Come on now. He threw me a curveball. This one says Lysen. So it seems like it doesn't really fucking matter. Just go with Lysen okay. or, if, if, or Lysen, whatever is, is the German. Directed by Mitchell Lysen. This movie stars Barbara Stanwyck, who plays a pregnant woman who steals the identity of another woman after a train crash. The other woman is a woman who died and is also expecting a child. Barbara Stanwyck's character, her name is Helen, she basically is taken in by this deceased woman's family because they have mistaken her. It's, well, it's the husband's family. The husband has never met the wife. So she's able to be, to say, like, I am this woman and I'm here and here's your grandchild. And, like, the implied horror of this specific movie is not... Not even like the grief or the death or or like the the stranger aspect of it. It's more that Barbara Stanwyck's character is an unwed mother mm -hmm. who needs <laughs> family and support to care for her. That's the horror that she has to go through these great lengths to to find that support. That's the horror. But it's also 1950s. Fair enough. We we do a hop, skip, and a jump to the 1960s. Rosemary's Baby. Aha. Directed in 1968 by Roman Polanski. Not really a PC man, but oh, 
we'll talk about his movie because it is one of the most iconic and influential horror movies of all time, let alone in this specific genre of pregnancy. But this is the first of many movies where she is specifically pregnant with the devil's spawn. This has been done and redone many times, but this is the first and it's considered a masterpiece to many people. So this movie stars Mia Farrow as Rosemary, who was unknowingly raped by the devil. Um, her husband was also involved in this whole conspiracy as he made a deal with the coven of witches who, who were their neighbors in this apartment building, um, offering her womb as the place of origin for the Antichrist. So in the 1970s, we have Beyond the Door, which was directed in 1974 by Ovidio G. Sinodis and Roberto Dittore Piazzoli. So this movie stars Juliette Mills, who plays a woman who cheats on her husband with a man who made a deal with the devil. Again. And surprise, surprise, she becomes pregnant with the Antichrist. It's interesting, and stop me if you're going to say something about this, but we we see this, this trope here that's clearly forming become an American Horror Stories episode in, in the first season of American Horror Stories. That's exactly what plays out between, between Billy Lord and... Her character's husband in the the demon oh, episode. Oh, that's that is true. That is true. I mean, and this is the entire premise for Mur Murder House as well. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this this is a trope that it's been beaten to death um, throughout. But the I, I mean specifically the deal with the devil part of it, like the 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 man making supposedly making a deal, even though that's not really what happens with her. It was like it, they were like staging it to try to gaslight her, but then it turns out there was a demon. But it was it was with the intention of like his actions were taken. So that's that's very akin to Rosemary's Baby. When Juliet Mills' character is pregnant with the Antichrist, she displays a wide variety of odd behaviors, like twisting her head around, and you know, an homage to The Exorcist, speaking in a weird guttural voice, and projectile vomiting all over the place all an homage to the exorcist <laughs> we kind of veer away from the antichrist trope with um the fly directed in 1986 by david cronenberg i have seen this movie this stars gina davis who's on-screen boyfriend played by the one and only jeff goldblum yes um turns himself into a fly accidentally by using a teleportation device that a fly accidentally slips into and then their their dna dna merges together and he slowly transforms into a fly but soon after he gets caught in the transportation device or the teleportation device he has sex with gina davis so she finds out that she's pregnant and is like terrified as jeff goldblum's character is slowly what's the word i want frighteningly turning into a fly pretty graphically she is terrified and has nightmares about carrying this hybrid human fly creature she does choose to get an abortion in the movie to avoid any possibility of like these fears coming to fruition but jeff goldblum's character has a plan to forcibly meld himself with her and their unborn baby using his machine so they can be the ultimate family a just a different look at like the whole pregnancy i mean the horror of this this film is not at all centered around the possibility that she is pregnant but it is a key critical part that obviously comes out as this extra layer of madness as he's turning into a fly. <laughs> I've never actually seen The Fly, but I really need to get around to watching it. I would recommend. I mean, it definitely is like a nonsensical piece of work, but you you get to look at Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum at the same time. And you, I mean, Cronenberg always, always brings you something for you to think about, <laughs> something, you, something for you to mull over. 
Indeed. Later in the 1980s, The Seventh Sign, directed by Carl Schulz, comes out. Um, this movie stars Demi Moore playing a pregnant woman who previously endured a miscarriage, which is a very like touchy subject to introduce into a movie. Demi Moore's character rents out a room with her, her, she and her husband rent out a room to a mysterious stranger who is revealed to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. And his mission is to open the seven seals that will unleash the biblical disasters upon the world. The final seal involves claiming the soul of the unborn baby. Awesome. 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 You know, normal Jesus stuff. Again, I, I do appreciate the refreshing pull away from the antichrist trope honestly Mm -hmm, you know something mm -hmm. different we're going on the other end of like the christian spectrum it's not the devil it's a fanatic christian exactly why why even bother with the antichrist when baby jesus seems to be doing such a good job on his own of ending the world (laughs) (laughs) and then finally in the 1980s uh, 1989 a nightmare on elm street the fifth installment the dream child directed by Stephen Hopkins. This stars Lisa Wilcox, who plays the heroine of the previous installment of this franchise, whose unborn child has their dreams inhabited by Freddy Krueger, resulting in the death of her loved ones. That series is wild. I love it. I unfortunately don't have a lot to say for the 1990s. I'm sure that there are, there, there are movies that exist that I just haven't found. That's fine. Because we're jumping right into the 2000s, starting with Children of Men, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. So this movie stars Claire Hope Ashidi, who is a pregnant woman in a dystopian future where two decades have passed without a single baby being born. Not necessarily what you'd consider to be a horror movie, but definitely a sci-fi suspense thriller kind of. There is a level of desperation with this woman being pregnant in this time and space. Have you seen this one? No. I mean, it is absolutely like a like a, a sci-fi thriller, but it is it's very gritty and realistic in the way that it's done. And their Quaron's vision of the near future, this near apocalyptic future without without people being able to be pregnant is very, very bleak and violent. So it honestly pushes the line almost into horror at times. It's, it is some heavy shit. Also in 2007, we have Inside, um, directed by Alexandre Bustillo and uh, Julian Mari. This stars Alison Paradis, who plays a pregnant woman who survives a car crash that kills her husband. She is later visited by a woman who has the intention of taking her baby The woman later returns by breaking into the bedroom and attempts to perform C-section with a pair of scissors. And this is a very gruesome scene. That's a true story, too. That happened. I remember reading about that and seeing about that on the news, that there was a story of a woman who who murdered another woman to cut her baby out of her because she wanted the baby. I I think I remember that story as well. I don't know if it's based on it. I don't know if if this movie is based on that story, but I, I... would be I don't know when that happened versus when that this came out, but well, if it is a true story, that might be a good topic for next week. We'll see. The House of the Devil came out in two thousand nine, directed by Ty West. Um, this stars Jocelyn Donahue, who plays a young woman who has taken a house sitting job but ends up drugged, bound, and pregnant with again the devil's child. Grace came out in two thousand nine and it was directed by Paul Soleil. I do believe that's how you say that. This stars Jordan Ladd, who plays a woman who chooses to carry her stillborn child, um, who died in the car crash that also killed her husband. 
and gives birth to her stillborn child, but somehow wills the child to life once it's been born. But then the infant begins exhibiting behaviors very atypical for a newborn child, including like drawing hordes of flies and drinking the blood um, that is squeezed from raw beef. I don't know what you're talking about. That's what my parents said that I did as a baby. Is there something wrong? (laughs) (laughs) That explains a lot, I think. Um, And then we jump into the 2010s. So we have Devil's Due, directed by Matt Bittinelli-Olpin and Tyler Gillette. This came out. 2014 this stars allison miller who plays a newly newlywed woman who was unknowingly cursed in a demonic ritual and becomes unexpectedly pregnant over the course of the pregnancy allison miller's character begins devouring red meat develops ugly bruises on her stomach and exhibits an intermittent sense of rage that goes well beyond normal pregnancy hormones and then in 2017 we have prevenge which was directed by Alice Lowe and also starred Alice Lowe in her real-life pregnancy. So Alice Lowe plays a pregnant widow named Ruth whose partner died in a climbing accident and believes her baby is guiding her to exact murderous revenge on those involved in his death. Can you imagine who directed this? Alice Lowe. I would love to check in with Alice Lowe's child in (laughs) however many years and just be like, how do you feel about the fact that this this is what your conception and and term of being your mother being pregnant with you this is what it inspired this is what she did with that time (laughs) well and and i the movie i if you have noticed i haven't talked about a movie that i've watched you haven't because the movie that i watched for this topic is a 2021 release it's the same director of raw julia de And this movie is Titan. I haven't even heard of this movie. This is a brand spanking new movie. So I always have to be really delicate about how I talk about new movies. But I I thought it was really fitting to put a really solid period emphasis on where we are in the history of pregnancy and horror. So this stars Agathe Rousseul, who plays a woman who seems to have always had a really strange connection to automobiles they show her as there's a scene in the movie where she's a young child and she is like humming along with the sound of the engine in the car as she's driving along with her father and gets into a car accident where she needs to have like a plate put in her head and there's a really ugly scar on her head Um, And as she's leaving the hospital as a young child, she literally like walks up to the car and like gives it a big wet kiss. Fast forward to her as an adult and she is, I don't know if it's a car show or if it's like a strip club with cars in them, but she is dancing very erotically on the hood of a car that she later has sex with and becomes pregnant with the uh car's child um it is a hybrid human automobile baby that she i have carries some questions about (laughs) the mechanics of that conception and i don't want the answer to any of them (laughs) it doesn't it doesn't show you what she inserts but it does show her like inside of the car her hands are like wrapped she's in the back seat her hands are like wrapped up in the seatbelt. And you get, like, scenes of her being very, like, erotically involved. It isn't very graphic. And then you see the outside scenes of the car 
like jumping. <laughs> Is the car alive? Is this like a Christine situation? Truly, after this, the car is never heard or seen from again. Like, never seen or heard from <laughs> again. Um, and and it does take a really wild turn. And I want you to tell me right now how much you want to know about this movie. Because this movie does have some wild shit about it. That depends. Do you recommend I watch it? I think it's worth it. Then don't tell me the twists. Okay. Because now I want to know. Okay. And also for our viewers. <laughs> watch, watch titane because i'm i i had no idea this movie existed and now i'm regretfully intrigued <laughs> and, and truthfully when i went into this movie all i knew was a woman had sex with a car and got pregnant that's what i knew and it, so it takes a wild turn after that it it does it it ta- it's just like the it the tone of the movie completely changes. You feel like you're watching a, a totally different movie. And then, like, you're reminded, like, oh, yeah, she's pregnant with, like, a car baby. <laughs> a car. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah oh, I yeah. need to watch this. Okay, yeah, you, I'm going to watch it. You definitely should. <laughs> but if we if we look at the history of pregnancy and horror, it, I mean, unsurprisingly, we've we've already talked about or I've already talked about the the maternal figure kind of being used as, as a plot point for horror. Really just falling on like maternal failures um as a propellant for horror the woman's body being you know in in all its grotesque features being put on display to further the horror and and i it, pregnancy it, it, especially when we think about the early portrayals of pregnancy and birth in horror it really is this the bulk of it is women being pregnant with the antichrist and unfortunately, but unsurprisingly, in those early films, it, it is somehow the woman's responsibility and her burden to bear that she's got herself in these positions to now have to carry out these terms of unholy pregnancy. In recent years, it has been much more refreshing, I think, to see more, I mean, women-empowered positions. I think about prevenge. It It is just a baby who seeks revenge on the death of their father it has nothing to do with the baby being evil or the devil and it has nothing to do with the mother's sorrow or kind of playing on those real human experiences as part of the horror i always like really am hesitant to indulge in that because horror would not exist without our real life emotional reaction to them but there are lines i think about grace with the stillborn baby being willed back to life i mean how many mothers who have gone through that experience wishing that that was something that would be possible and then to turn that experience into a horror which rightfully it it would be that's a good point that you raise and something that i've kind of grappled with as both a horror fan and also a writer recently is is the fact that horror is based around human experience and oftentimes human tragedy but at the same time there are lines you shouldn't cross and where those lines fall within the horror genre and within fiction in general is kind of like a, a giant thing to have to grapple with, both as an audience member and as a person who creates stuff. Just where do you draw the line? In in this episode of, of Murder House, Vivian, of course, dies. She likely through some psychic connection 
Michael has to the home. He wants to be born right here, right now. <laughs> and and Vivian really has no choice but to be aided by the ghosts in the house. Luckily, there's a doctor and several nurses who um, haunt the home, but it's not enough to save Vivian. She she dies during childbirth, and that that's a that's a real horror that we have seen throughout history in the care of of women giving birth. And unfortunately, current day, present day, this is still an issue in a lot of places where being pregnant and giving birth is a very dangerous thing to do. Kind of going way, 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 way back, I want to talk just a little bit about why the human birthing experience is uniquely difficult. No other animal has as much of a challenge to give birth to their offspring as humans do. So humans are descended from ape-like creatures, don't fight me about this, evolution is real, <laughs> that walked on four legs. Um, and then when early humans evolved to walk upright on two legs, our pelvises got smaller. We evolved some more and our brains got bigger and bigger. So there is a disproportionate ratio here of pelvic size and skull size that just... No other species has to overcome this specific challenge. So we literally evolved to make birth harder. Unintentionally, of course. Like that, the, the difficulty of the birth wasn't. Well, yeah. I have like a little nugget of information stored in my brain, but I don't know if it's true or if I made this up or if I heard this from an uncredible source. But another like unintended benefit of like the difficulty of our birthing process is that it, it does create an extra layer of attachment like you've worked so hard to bring this child into the world that it is it does create like cognitive dissonance for you not to care for that being it makes it tracks it makes sense but i don't know exactly how um accurate that is another hypothesis um as to how child childbirth became more difficult is because of farming Archaeologists first became suspicious when they found few infant skeletons in hunter-gatherer burials, but found a great deal of them in farming communities. We started to eat more carbohydrates, um, which made us shorter and fatter than our hunter-gatherer um, ancestors, whose diets were much more nutritious. And this meant that women had even smaller pelvises, and the babies became fatter in the womb, making birth more difficult and leading to more fatalities for mothers and babies during the birthing process. Couple theories there. During the 1500s, childbirth was so dangerous that a woman would make out her will as soon as she found out she was pregnant. Wow. In Scotland, 1591, Euphame McLean was burned at the stake for asking for pain relief during the delivery of her twins. Burned at the stake? They thought she was a witch? Because she didn't or want just her... Yeah, because she wanted her labor to be less painful. They burnt her at the stake. Jesus. And she was giving birth to twins. Some other old wives tales from this time were um, that women should not think strange thoughts while they are pregnant. So, for instance, uh, people believe that if you thought about monkeys, your children would be born hairy. And midwives were sometimes accused of witchcraft if something went wrong with the pregnancy. Great. <laughs> Lots of... <laughs> Lack of education and information. Of course, it was the 1500s, but it was during the Renaissance, so the 15th and 16th centuries, that medical doctors began to take part in childbirth. Took doctors this long. Mm -hmm. But to the credit of midwives, like midwives had this 
Like, they did the work. Yeah. Honestly. Shout out to the midwives and our histories because they were they were doing some real work. But it wasn't until the Renaissance that doctors actually became involved in childbirth. But <laughs> I love to take a, like a heavy-handed approach to my topics. But like as as I think I've said before, you know, most of these people, most of medical doctors during this time were white male people. And though they, there were a lot of writings and advice that came from this period of time from prominent phys- physicians, a lot of their advice was just guesswork. So they didn't actually work with the midwives who had been doing, who had been involved in like the birthing process for hundreds of years. They didn't take the time to listen to these people. They were just like, okay, we're going to write down what we think. We're not actually going to figure out for sure, but we're just going to... Just like showed up on the scene like... We got it from here. You guys, you've you've handled it, but we clearly know what we're talking about. <laughs> and we're just going to start pulling shit out of our asses and act like we know what we're doing. Basically, basically. This is probably not uh, new information to, to most people, at least. It was not new information to me growing up very Catholic. Um, but in Puritan communities, pain during childbirth was God's punishment, or it was believed to be God's punishment for Eve and all, and all women who came afterward. So during the 17th and 18th centuries, before germ theory, doctors went from patient to patient unknowingly carrying bacteria on their instruments and their unwashed hands. The disease that they referred to during this time when mothers would suddenly mysteriously become sick and ill was um, pure pearl fever. And a famous victim of this disease was Mary Wollstonecraft, the mother of... Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, um, in 1797, she gave birth to Mary with the assistance of a midwife. But then a doctor was called to help remove the placenta, and he came quickly with unwashed hands. Mary Shelley's mother died a, a painful but typical death over the next week. It, it's interesting, then, that she went on to write doctor-based horror. Mm-hmm. Was it during this... It was double feature where I was refreshed of the man who basically invented hand washing, right? That's no, that's in um that's in Midnight Mass. Oh. Okay, never mind then. Whenever whenever Aaron shows up and is like, I think vampires are happening and then the doctor is like, let me tell you about this hand washing dude. <laughs> he has a, ro- a roundabout long monologue to say I believe you. <laughs> I mean, listen. Uh that was very informative and it was very accurate. So mm-hmm. I appreciate that. No, I loved but... it. I loved it. I love every monologue in that show. But that's about where we are in history right now. Um prior to modern antiseptics and hygienic practices, C-sections had only been used in situations when the mother was not expected to live. So something that is very common now used to be worst-case scenario protocol. Childbirth changed dramatically in the 19th century with the introduction of anesthetics. So dentist William Morton developed the use of ether for surgery in 1846. Obstetrician Sir James Young Simpson introduced chloroform as an anesthetic in 1847. Queen Victoria used chloroform during her eighth delivery in 1853. And then in 1914, a method called twilight sleep was developed, which involved morphine and scopolamine. The mother slept through delivery, but the drugs also affected the baby, and sometimes the child didn't breathe at all. The morphine also caused some mothers to die in childbirth. Horrifically, Twilight Sleep didn't lose popularity until the 1960s. (laughs) It took them that long to be like, you know, maybe we shouldn't. 
maybe this is a bad idea. I guess it's just at that point they had been like, well, sometimes you die during childbirth. So at least this way, I mean, they had just accepted it as being part of it at that point instead of once being like, maybe, maybe we just keep choosing the wrong methods. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But instead we choose the wrong methods and we use them for decades and decades and decades. Which all happened because the doctors got involved and didn't listen to the midwives who knew what they were doing. That is how most of history has happened. Indeed. Unfortunately. (laughs) And that, that is, you know, I guess the real life horrific history of pregnancy and childbirth for our human species the moral of the story is don't have sex or you will get pregnant and die listen abstinence (laughs) does not work and that has been proven i this is this this podcast also does not condone abstinence absolutely you shouldn't say that (laughs) i I say that i don't condone some people actively voluntarily choose abstinence and everybody has the right to do that but what we don't condone is like abstinence being the most prominent option for preventing pregnancy and death we we (laughs) are pro sex education and pro decent health care here at it's a fucking goddamn (laughs) horror show that was a that was a winding journey. I'm glad I got us from point A to point B. I'm really <laughs> glad I did. <laughs> well, I think on that depressing note, but very informative note, we are going to take a quick commercial break. Um, stick with us, and we'll be back right after this brief message. Hey folks, Monique here to unfortunately remind you that reproductive rights are in jeopardy as more and more states are implementing laws that make it difficult or nearly impossible to get an abortion. So I'd like to shout out a few different organizations that you can choose to donate to or get involved with to secure the future of reproductive rights. The first is the National Abortion Federation, whose mission is to unite, represent, serve, and support abortion providers in delivering patient-centered evidence-based care. You can check them out at prochoice.org. Next is the NARAL Pro-Choice America Foundation, which represents the eight in 10 Americans who believe that everybody should have the freedom to make the best decision for themselves about if, when, and how to start or grow a family, free from political interference. You can check them out at prochoiceamerica.org. And lastly is the Planned Parenthood Action Fund, which works to advance access to sexual health care and defend reproductive rights. You can check that out at plannedparenthoodaction.org. Welcome back to It's a Filthy Goddamn Horror Show, where Nathan is about to talk about his topic for the week. I sure am. Uh, in this this episode of Murder House, we see yet another fabulous appearance by Billy Dean, played by Sarah Paulson, who shows up to teach Violet a little bit about a banishing spell that hopefully will help banish some of the ghosts in the house who are who are meaning harm against Violet's family and more specifically the impending babies in, in this scene, Billy Dean refers to a very fictionalized version of the Roanoke legend um, and explains that the word Croatoan, which famously is part of the Roanoke legend was carved on a tree is apparently this banishing spell that if that if Violet says it, it's a word that that holds power over evil spirits. And if Violet says it, she can use it to banish the ghosts of Chad and Patrick, who are trying to steal her mother's babies. And from that, I decided I was going to talk about Roanoke. And 
in searching for a movie that that had something to do with colonial horror obviously we've already talked about the witch so i didn't want to do that and while this movie is not colonial horror it just sort of popped up in my mind and i i decided i had to give it a rewatch because it is admittedly a guilty pleasure movie and that movie is the village have you seen the village i feel like i again i am apparently not i'm actually just reading your notes to see if anything seems <laughs> ring a bell because <laughs> it's Shyamalan so tell me about the village and then I guess I will tell you if it rings any bells or not this is the one where it takes place in like an 1800s style rural village and there are monsters in the woods and none of them are supposed to leave the village and go to the towns nearby because there are these monsters in the woods that are drawn to the color red and keep slaughtering animals and stuff and the main character is Bryce Dallas Howard and she's blind I think I have seen this it's so ridiculous so. but i it's such a guilty pleasure movie for me it's written and directed by m night Shyamalan, who we have talked about on this podcast before talking about the sixth sense this was his fourth movie after the sixth sense unbreakable and signs it stars bryce dallas howard let me just take a moment to shout out the incredible cast of this movie these are all such ridiculous like ridiculously well-known names this movie stars bryce dallas howard joaquin phoenix adrian brody sigourney weaver william hurt brendan gleason cherry jones judy greer michael pitt and an early role for jesse eisenberg who i forgot was in the movie until he showed up on screen (laughs) i think i even read his name in the credits and i was just like nah (laughs) and then he showed up on screen i was like that's jesse eisenberg (laughs) must be a different jesse eisenberg not the one it just didn't even click it just didn't even click with me i didn't even recognize it when i saw the name and then i saw his face and he looks like he's like 16 it's crazy but yeah an insanely good cast in spite of that this movie sort of marked a general downturn in reception towards Shyamalan's work uh that's largely attributed to the fact that it was marketed as another horror movie from him but it really isn't one it it, it's it's sort of within the horror genre but and while they were filming it the intent was that it was going to be a horror movie but as Shyamalan was working on editing the film and scoring the film with uh composer James Newton Howard he saw what they'd made and started to realize that horror just didn't quite feel right, that it had ended up being more of a romance. So he actually asked James Newton Howard about halfway through the process of scoring the film to throw out most of what they'd done and refocus the music on romance. And the result is sort of this romance-horror hybrid. I was going to say, not really a combination you see, or, you know, those are not genres that are often connected in, like, a meaningful way. Exactly, at least in a way that's, it's, like, this isn't, a horror romance in that it's about someone falling in love with some sort of horror figure or or anything like that or a horror movie where it or a romance where it seems like it's a romance and then the person finds out that they're married to someone terrible or something like that it is it's truly focused on the human stories of the people in this village and specifically the romance between ivy who's played by bryce dallas howard and lucius who's played by joaquin phoenix just within the setting of like monumental community gaslighting in this film for those for those who don't know about about the village um i'm just gonna real quick summarize what what's going on in it and this is a good moment to uh shut your little ears if you don't want to be spoiled about the village but i feel like most people who want to watch this movie probably already have or probably already know the twist 
but it follows a, a large assortment of characters within sort of this 1800s style village in the middle of, of Pennsylvania. For the most part, they live harmoniously in the village, but none of them are allowed to go into the, the, the woods nearby or to go to the towns, the larger towns that are apparently nearby, uh, just a, a couple miles through the woods from their village because of the fact that there are these monsters, which are referred to as those they don't speak of, um, these giant animalistic monsters that wear these like red cloaks who live in the woods. And as the film goes on, the monsters start coming into the village more animals are showing up skinned. The tension within the village is being ratcheted up as the limitations of being an 1800s village start to become more and more apparent. Like their isolation becomes more and more of a problem, which eventually leads to the main character, Ivy played by Bryce Dallas Howard having to leave and it is in the moment that she leaves that it is revealed that, first of all, the monsters are not real. They're, they're the village elders who have been dressing up as the monsters to keep everybody in the village. And the reason that they're doing it is because while it seems like it's the 1800s, it is actually modern day. This is a group of people who in, I think it's supposed to be the 60s or, or 70s or something like that, had all collectively met in a, a support group for people who had been through loss and had been through family tragedies and just deaths and things like that and all decided to collectively leave society and go establish this settlement in the middle of the woods. So it, it's kind of as far as twist endings and as far as M. Night Shyamalan twist endings, it was it's sort of the most extreme of the bunch. And for that reason it was not particularly well-received <laughs> when it came out. Um, it has since become a little bit more of, of a cult classic within especially people who like M. Night Shyamalan's work, but just in general, people enjoy it a little bit more. And in spite of the fact that its plot is a little extreme and wild at times, it is beautifully made, which I was reminded of when I was watching it this time. It is... The, the cinematography is gorgeous. The art direction, the costume design, every shot is so perfectly lit and gorgeously lit with either natural light or candlelight. It's just stunning, the whole movie. Uh, the the score is, is Oscar-nominated and is hands down one of, I think, hands down my favorite score of any movie. It's just gorgeous. But it really kind of plays into, into themes of community horror and isolation and rural horror which is a personal favorite genre of mine which which leads me just in terms of isolation and community horror leads me into my topic for this week i guess i appreciate that rural horror is something that piques your interest as you've already mentioned that you grew up in like rural pennsylvania and i i grew up in rural minnesota and just the specific eeriness of the woods in general you know that's so true I, yeah, I was very creeped out by where I grew up a lot of the time in during the day. It's gorgeous, but at night it's, it's very remote and it's, there's just a lot of specific elements of culture and rural communities and belief systems and lore and superstition and isolation that make rural horror just very fascinating to me. It's also not something that's done a lot in horror. So when it is done, I'm always very very fascinated by it i think i think too something that is true in real life it also like propels the horror that we see in media is i mean recently i was 
having conversations with my family about how we have all felt absolutely creeped out by the woods where we've grown up and lived and and that just being like a very unique experience with I mean with your families with with your close communities and that kind of tying into isolation but I mean the larger aspect of it is so the larger picture is like everybody who lives in rural areas likely has something about the the woods or like the places that they've they've grown up bringing that um I don't know, embedded horror, you know, the horror that we yeah. grew up with. Mm -hmm. So that's the village. Um, bringing it back to, to Roanoke and this episode of American Horror Story, we also have the moment where Violet attempts this apparent spell by screaming Croatoan at Zachary Quinto. Um, plot twist, it doesn't work. And in this moment, we see one of many instances where Croatoan from the Roanoke myth is sort of treated as this, this mystery word or this magic word or something that just has sort of supernatural or creepy significance. So <laughs> what I want to do today is just pop that little balloon, burst that bubble for people and, and demystify the word Croatoan talking a bit about the, the Roanoke legend and giving some, some history and some backstory and then specifically explaining for those who don't know what Croatoan means, why it was carved into the tree, and why it's not the mystery that it has always been made out to be. Well, that I that Ryan Murphy has kind of made his personal his personal <laughs> pet project. Yeah, for real. So I think a lot of people probably know generally the Roanoke story. I feel like it's something that we all were taught at some point during our education during our American history courses, were you ever, were you talk about the, taught about the Roanoke colony in school? This is not going to be a great podcast if I'm always going to be asked about things. <laughs> um, because honestly, probably, I don't know if I was actually properly introduced to the Roanoke colony until Roanoke American Horror Story. Really? Wow. Wow. I think I, I'm I'm ninety nine percent sure we were taught about it in school, at least at my school. But well, you grew up on the East that's, Coast. That's true. I did grow up on the East Coast, so it's possible that that it was just more a part of our. I got a lot of colonial history, a lot of colonial history. Most of it was not accurate. Let's be honest about that now. But <laughs> sure, I sure did receive it. But it's it's kind of always just held this legend status in American history. Um, a historian named Adrian Masters once referred to it as the Area 51 of colonial history. Uh, so just to give some background for people who don't know about the Roanoke colony, it was an expedition by Sir Walter Riley to establish a colony in the New World. Um, to go back a little bit further than that, and if you remember from last episode when I talked about the 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 Flat Rock fire poltergeist about how that was very close to St. John's in Canada, which was the earliest North American settlement. St. John's in Newfoundland was founded, discovered, just yeah, founded by Sir Humphrey Gilbert, who was originally granted the charter for the Roanoke colony, as well as basically the entire East Coast. The intent was that he should, quote, explore and colonize territories unclaimed by Christian kingdoms. So basically what that meant is that 
Queen Elizabeth I granted him a charter saying anything on the east coast of the New World that's north of Spanish Florida, you can do what you want with it. Go explore it. Claim it in my name. (laughs) Turn it into an English territory. Colonialism, ladies and gentlemen. Unfortunately, he died before he was able to, to fully take advantage of that charter. So it was divided between two half-brothers named Adrian Gilbert and Walter Raleigh. Gilbert was given the rights to everything north of St. John's in Newfoundland, which, if you know Canadian geography, is a lot of just very cold terrain. Not a whole lot up there. Um, whereas Raleigh was given all land points south. Background on Raleigh for people who don't know, Walter Raleigh was an explorer, a scholar, a poet, a lot of other things. He's also responsible for the introduction of potatoes and tobacco. And he was expected by Queen Elizabeth I with his half of the charter to, quote, discover, search out, find, and view such remote heathen and barbarous lands, countries, and territories to have, hold, occupy, and enjoy. However, he had to do so by 1951 or he would lose his rights to colonization in the New World. The problem, and maybe some of our our listeners already know this, what? He had until 1951? Sorry, sorry. 1591. Okay, I was like, oh, I was like, he's given a lot of time. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> that was really a pass-fail assignment. Um. <laughs> the problem was that he had to do so by 1591 or he would lose his rights to colonizing the New World. The problem with that, and maybe some of our listeners already know this, is that there was sort of a, a rumored and long-chronicled relationship between Elizabeth I and Walter Raleigh. I don't know if historians are entirely clear on on how much went down, but there have been a lot of movies that have depicted that relationship. There have been, a, it's it's widely written about that she had a bit of a thing for Raleigh. This is news to me. So. Is it really? No, yeah, they, they, they definitely had a thing and then he was put into prison at the Tower of London for, for some amount of time because he married someone without her permit, without the queen's permission. I believe she eventually ordered him beheaded for something too. It was it was a whole thing. It was a whole thing. Uh, so yeah, he he was told that he was supposed to explore and colonize the new world, but he literally was not allowed to leave her side. He had to stay in court. So he had to arrange expeditions to go in his place. The first attempt, which was a failed attempt, was by Ralph Lane in 1585. Uh, they sailed to the new world and landed on what became known as Roanoke Island. For anybody who doesn't know, Roanoke Island is in the Outer Banks in North Carolina. It's eight miles long and two miles wide, and it lies between the mainland and the barrier islands. And the name comes from the Roanoke, which were an Algonquin tribe who had lived there for at least 800 years before the colonizers came to start taking over the place. That's a long time. Yeah. So unfortunately, that colony failed and was abandoned in 1586 due to lack of supplies and also a lot of hostilities between the colonists and the Native Americans who were unsurprisingly not happy to see them. They had made requests for supplies, but the supply ship, which was led by Sir Richard Greenville, arrived two weeks after they abandoned the colony, so it headed back to England, uh, but it left behind a group of men to maintain the settlement until more of Raleigh's people could come. Well, I'm just thinking about, like, it's an eight-mile, it's an eight-by-two piece of land... Why? How foolish. Just go a little bit further. Get a little, just go to the shore. Stop fighting these people who have lived here for 800 years. Exactly. That's the thing is that, is that Raleigh wanted 
he wanted a, a city to be established somewhere around the Chesapeake Bay to be to be the first big major settlement. So they keep going to these islands in these little spots, but it's literally just like go a little bit further so you're not isolating yourself. Just it not not the smartest, not the smartest decisions. I don't know. They're all coming from England, so maybe they're just like, we don't know what to do. Islands are all we know. Like, <laughs> what are we going to do if we don't live on a tiny little island? <laughs> so John White leads the second expedition in 1587. He lands on the same island to check in on Greenville's men, although he does not intend to try again to set up a colony there because it's no longer safe for English colonizers, given that the people who were there came back and said, hey, we didn't do so well with relations with the Native Americans Maybe let's try somewhere else. So he really just just stops in to check on the men that were left behind by the supply ship earlier. Uh, it bears mentioning that John White's wife was Thomason White, who is um, was adapted for season six for Roanoke. She's the butcher. That's who she's supposed to be. But she was never actually reported to be one of the colonists who went along on the voyage. Oh. I learned a couple facts about... about how Roanoke actually adapted the real history while I was doing this that were interesting. We'll save some things to talk about during the Roanoke season. I will. Don't worry. I will. So once they get to the island, White and the colonists depart the ship to check on Greenville's men. Once they're on the island, uh, the the captain of the flagship, which the flagship in in a fleet of ships or just a small group of ships, the flagship is, is the main one in charge. Once White and the colonists are on the island, the captain of the flagship orders that they'd be left there because he, he, they were just like, we're just going to go. We're just going to go ahead onto the mainland that will come back for them later. Bye. So they left them there. Have fun. Exactly. The next day, White and some of the colonists look around for Greenville's men, but they find no signs that Greenville's men were ever there with the exception of the remains of one of the men who appeared to have been killed by a Native American. But the rest of them were just gone. So that's there was already a disappearance of a, of a group of people on the island that I didn't so know. So this about. isn't even Roanoke yet. We're not even. This isn't even the main oh the boy. main Roanoke disappearance. This is just the beginning. This is the group of colonists who are eventually going to disappear. I just lot to be said. History would be a very <laughs> short discussion if it weren't for the persistence of overprivileged majority. Now that they're stuck on the island, they decide, well, obviously we need to make a go for it. So they start to set up just a, a, a basic colony. Uh, in no time at all, one of them is killed by a Native American while searching for crabs along the island's shore. Like they haven't been warned. Exactly. As they continue to try to make their colony work, they're running short on supplies. Relations with the Native Americans are getting worse. And eventually the colonists convince White to sail back to England for supplies and assistance. He reluctantly agrees and leaves in 1588, leaving behind his daughter, who had recently had a baby of her own, a little girl who was named the first Christian born in Virginia because North Carolina was technically Virginia at the time. It was part of a larger Virginia and also his son-in-law. White's return is delayed by the war between the English and the Spanish, but eventually he returns. They sail around the island looking for people around the shore. Don't see anybody weigh anchor for the night and decide they're going to wait uh, during which time or during that night the the sailors on the ships sing English like English traditional songs in the hope that the colonists on the island will hear them and know that help has come 
which creeps me out to no end that the sailors were just like on the ships being like, we're going to raise their spirits and, and let them know that we're here and we're going to sing. And they're just singing to an, an empty colony. Nobody was there to hear them. Finally, the next day, they go ashore on what should be uh, White's granddaughter, the, the baby who was born on the island. It should be her third birthday. They find that the settlement has been fortified with a palisade around, around the outside as if it is being fortified from attack. A tree near the outside of the settlement has the letters CRO carved onto it, and then one of the posts of the palisade, uh, which for people who don't know is just sort of like a fortified wooden fence meant to sort of protect against attack. One of the posts on the palisade has the word Croatoan carved into it. When they go into the settlement itself, they find it completely empty. None of the colonists are there, and the fate of the colonists is never determined. There are theories about what happened to them, but there continues to be a lot of speculation around it because of the fact that there was no actual evidence of what happened to them, and the fact that nobody investigated it or followed up in time to be able to find out, so it sort of just went down in history with legend status. And it was actually largely ignored by historians in the country's early years, but it caught on, you know, had a lot of, of dashing explorers and, and fights between the Native Americans and the explorers, which were obviously viewed with a, a particular bent at the time. And just the mystery of the disappearance, it kind of caught people's attention and it became this national legend and a part of our history. And in it, Croatoan is always presented as a mystery word. But as I said at the beginning, I'm going to demystify <laughs> the word Croatoan. It has a very logical explanation, which I'm going to get into now. The likely explanation for what happened to the Roanoke settlement is that they decided entirely willingly and peacefully to leave the settlement. A system had been agreed on years earlier should the colonists choose to leave the island in which they would carve their destination into a tree, which meant they had left peacefully. Or, if they were leaving under some sort of duress, they would leave behind a cross carved on the tree. Croatoan is both the name of a nearby tribe of Native Americans and another nearby island. So what that means is that they probably decided to leave because things were getting, either they were running out of supplies or things with the, the other, with the Native Americans specifically who lived on Roanoke Island were not going well. They decided to leave and they either went and sought help from the Croatoan tribe or they left and set up another settlement on Croatoan Island. So you're telling me that there was a pre-established plan that seems to have been followed through beautifully and the people who had made multiple trips across the Atlantic Ocean from England to the States and back trying desperately to fortify this colony couldn't just take their little ships and go to a nearby island? Well, here's the thing. White himself was convinced that this was the case. It's not like they all showed up. You know, history, and and I think when I was told the story, it's always been presented that they showed up and it was just this, this creepy, mysterious scene of, oh, where did they go and all of this. But White himself was convinced that this was the case to the point that he wanted to check. I mean, when they got there, first of all, none of the boats were found. 
None of the colonists' boats were on the island, which means they probably took them. Houses had been dismantled. Anything that could be carried was gone. And several trunks that had been, bur- had been buried and were full of White's own valuables, which means someone who knew him had to know where they were. They were dug up and emptied, which was probably his daughter and son-in-law being like, we're leaving, we need to take his stuff with us so when he comes back, he has it. But he never came, never came back? They never found them. He wanted, he wanted to check. And they had started to set sail for the, the, the closest islands to check, or for Croatoan Island to check. However, the weather got so bad that they weren't able to make it there and they had to turn back and eventually go back to England without checking. They never tried again? Not for, for years and years and years, they never went back. And that's why it became, became mystery status. Not because we don't have any idea what happened to them, but just because it wasn't followed up on, so we, could, we can't say definitively. However, as early as 1605, so this is, is 1590 that they, that they find that the, the colony is empty. As early as 1605, there are reports of pale-skinned, blonde-haired people among the local tribes in the area, which means that the colonists likely left the island, integrated with the local tribes, and the population was dispersed into the tribes of the area. So yeah. <laughs> there are other other like branch theories, theories that branch off of this one um including that they were killed by local tribes when they left to ask for help. Some theories state that they may have tried to sail back to England and the ship was lost at sea. There's even even a proposed conspiracy against Walter Raleigh which is why the colonists were, were marooned, like this, this conspiracy to ruin him by causing the settlement to fail. Some historians believe that only some of the, the colonists went to the Croatoan tribe, while another portion of the colonists and maybe a larger portion went to another tribe. Um, but the, the thing about that is these are white people, white colonists arriving in Native American communities. They're carrying diseases that the Native Americans aren't equipped to handle. So a lot of historians believe that they may have integrated with a local tribe, inadvertently killed most of them off, leaving a a power imbalance in the area, and then that tribe was wiped out by a larger tribe. That's like a whole involved theory, but it's it's another facet of this. Um, But regardless, most theories by historians involve the idea that they abandoned the settlement and we just don't know exactly what happened to them. But it's always been presented as a mystery, and it never really was one. There's likely nothing supernatural or unordinary about it. We just don't know specifically where they ended up. In a book on the subject, historian, there's a historian named Scott Dawson who writes, they were never lost, it was made up, the mystery is over. I mean, we do love a good story, though. Exactly. And it's, and it's still a good story. It's just, it's, that's the thing, is that it endured as a legend because the mysterious parts of it and the part where you leave out the logical explanation makes it such a good story that that's just what gets passed down, which is probably the source of a lot of our scary stories throughout history. I just want to, I just want to know because there is like a definitive difference between the colonists like integrating with the local native American tribes and being lost at sea or slaughtered, you know, like, 
one, there is a possibility for the bloodlines of those colonists to further and mm-hmm. and for their, you know, descendants to, to still be alive today and, and for there to be no descendants at all. Yeah. And I guess that that's where my brain draws its curiosity is not so I mean it, it again, it's really <laughs> I don't know what the word is. It, it is it, maybe it's humorous it's so humorous to me that so many attempts were made to establish this colony but a fraction of the effort was made to locate the colonists <laughs> but i think about the flip side of like the colonists also being like hey you know we're we're the people from the rono colony like it's us we're high we're here like <laughs> heard you were looking for us or just like yeah. to let other people know but but there's yeah. there isn't a whisper of that either but then th- the thing with that is i don't think it had really taken on mystery status and legend status until long after those people would have been dead it wasn't like a they mysteriously vanished or anything like that. It was just kind of a, obviously they went and integrated with the local tribes. So it it wasn't like, it wasn't a thing that people were discussing until it was already too late to actually look into it was the thing. Like they, they basically just gave them up for lost. Well, I guess just to continue to argue about something that does not need to be argued about, (laughs) there's still like an, even though it, it it's generally insignificant, there's still an oral history that we all tell, that we all, you know, we don't all know our histories, but like there is someone in our family who can tell us very specific, yet insignificant details about the history of our families going back several generations. So you would think when it did become kind of this national legend that someone would have been like, hey, like my great great grandpa like told me about it, like, but but that that's true. Which also that could that could give credence to the theory that either they were they were slaughtered, or that they were the population was dispersed and then died off because of disease or or any number of things. But regardless, we we while we don't know exactly what happened to them when they left Roanoke Island. We do know that they likely just chose to leave. What about the Roanoke people? They also left? The Native Americans? No, they stayed. Okay. Even so, Croatoan continues to endure in popular culture, and the Roanoke legend continues to hold mystery status. Uh, Croatoan is still treated as a magic or an evil word. Um, just a couple... Three, three little examples that I found of this appearing in pop culture. Uh, in the 19, sorry, in a 1994 Batman Spawn graphic novel, uh, there's a demon named Croatoan. In the TV show Supernatural, there is a demonic virus called the Croatoan virus. And then horror author Stephen King has used it in two different occasions. Uh, he has a 1999 miniseries called Storm of the Century um, in which a dark figure shows up in an island town during a nor'easter during storm and, and demands of its residents give me what I want and I'll go away later on in the series a character experiences a premonition of all of the islanders throwing themselves into the sea with Croato and written on their foreheads so it's sort of just this moment of Stephen King being like here's this island community being terrorized by this demonic force this is also what happened to the Roanoke people, is the implication. He also 
Stephen King also has the the TV series Haven, which is I think loosely based on his novel The Colorado Kid, in which <laughs> Croatoan is a monster played by none other than William Shatner. Not really the monster type. I don't know. Maybe he is. Depends who you ask. <laughs> According to I <laughs> and yet his face, as we have established in this podcast, is eternally the face of Michael Myers of the Halloween franchise. <laughs> <laughs> It's always a little depressing to hear about the the blight that is early American history and colonizers, the power of, of white people thinking they can just take things away, <laughs> taking <laughs> land away, throwing hissy fits, and wanting so desperately this 16, you know, square mile island. American horror story, American history. well does that mean it's time for a twist ending i wanted to talk about fun facts about the entirety of american horror story murder house love it so jessica lang originally turned down the role of constance for this season um, however, she accepted after Ryan Murphy repeatedly offered it to her. Can you imagine? We almost had an American Horror Story without Jessica Lang. Earlier, Nathan informed me that Jessica Lang is responsible for Sarah Paulson being on the show. So if Jessica Lang hadn't responded to Ryan Murphy's many attempts to cast her, we also would not have Sarah Paulson. That's true. Uh, Jessica Lang and Sarah Paulson had previously worked together in an off-Broadway show or in, an, in a Broadway show. They were in The Glass Menagerie together and they had developed a friendship during that. So whenever Jessica Lang was cast on the show, she recommended Sarah Paulson to Ryan Murphy and the rest is history. American Horror Story wouldn't even be a fraction of, of what it has become because of these iconic and phenomenal actors. This episode, um, Vivian's unusual demon baby pregnancy cravings are Ryan Murphy's attempt to, or attempt at one-upping the liver scene in Rosemary's Baby, which I talked about earlier this episode. So unintentionally, I have taken these, I guess, very prominent influences in the show and just been like, oh, what a coincidence. These things are connected. (laughs) No, they're intentionally connected. Um... The Harmon family dog in Murder House um, has many other acting credits to her name. By the way, her name is Lamb Chop. And she even had to miss a few episodes of Murder House because she was busy shooting for the sitcom Suburgatory. Can't say that I've heard of that, but I'm happy that Lamb Lamb Chop has got credits to her name. I also would like to propose Lamb Chop become the official mascot of It's a Filthy Goddamn Horror Show. (laughs) Well, that unfortunately would have to kind of come with Lamb Trap is likely no longer alive. Uh, That's true. That's probably true. Murder House happened 10 years. No disrespect. (laughs) And, you know, uh, dead pets just isn't my thing. Um, Evan Peters. No, I got, I I found multiple different reports for this. So I'm going to kind of slip in both reports of what I found. So Evan Peters needed to lubricate, unsurprisingly, needed to lubricate the rubber suit to slip it on more easily. It was, there are some reports that I found that said he lubricated with olive oil, which I feel like would have a very specific aroma (laughs) 
to it or just using like good good old old fashioned lubricant um to get into the suit but he also split the suit a lot while performing stunts i have to wonder what he was wearing under there because there are no underwear (laughs) lines on that suit and also evan peters (laughs) has not been afraid to just go naked under costumes before because there's a story i'll tell this super super fast there's a story from season two during the caning scene where where i know i found this i found this he flashes he accidentally flashes he flashed his balls to to jessica lang because he didn't wear the little the little sock thing that they're supposed to wear over their junk so he leaned over and just his balls are out and jessica lang's like oh okay if i'm just thinking about mechanics nathan you don't lube yourself up and then put clothes on to put on a rubber suit. So is he just like fully naked under there? I do not want Evan Peters and then or American Horror Story to come after us for any kind of <laughs> slander. He probably was not wearing anything or very little underneath that rubber suit. And I'm sure there are some people in the world right now who have some very interesting stories to tell about the bits and pieces they have seen of Evan Peters. We talked a lot about, or or you talked a lot about the characters of Chad and Patrick with your telling of, of Roanoke and Croatoan. These roles were originally offered to the married celebrity couple, Neil Patrick Harris and uh, David Burka. And they they turned them down, but they come back later in American Horror Story. They actually turned him down because they had just played themselves in, I believe, the Harold and Kumar Christmas movie. They had oh, okay. like made cameos as themselves, but it was a part of the movie that they were arguing the whole time. Like it was supposed to be that it's Neil Patrick Harris and David Burka, but here's actually they're a wildly unhappy couple and they didn't want to do it again on screen so soon they didn't want people to like start associating them with a fighting couple so they turned it down i think that's a very smart move um i think it would have been very risky to do a i mean i think for you know harold and kumar it's a it's a that's a different vibe than american horror story and definitely with chad and patrick we do not end the season feeling very good about them we do not think they're a healthy couple who should be together for eternity so I think for their real life relationship to be portrayed in that way really would have been damaging. There apparently was um, at least a, a brief significant connection between two actors on set. Um, Evan Peters had previously dated Ashley Rickards, who played Chloe, which if you remember is one of the, it's the cheerleader that he murdered in the school shooting. They had dated while they were on One Tree Hill together um earlier that's dark were they dating during the show i I see i found differing reports some saying that they just were dating during their one tree hill experience together and the other reports saying that they were currently were dating while they were filming um these scenes for murder house but either way they did previously at least have a romantic relationship and then had to on the one hand evan peters did a school shooting scene with his girlfriend. On the other hand, he did a school shooting scene with his ex. That would definitely make for an awkward situation if the relationship did not end amicably. You have already taught us about the opening credits of American Horror Story Murder House, created by Kyle Cooper. I did not know that he also did the opening credits for The Walking Dead, as well as the title sequence for the movie Seven. 
it was really because I was I also around the same time I began watching American Horror Story I also began watching The Walking Dead and it would never have occurred to me but they're both bone chilling mm-hmm. like opening sequences this the talent that this man has to he's he's really good at horror and he's really good at distorted type and and flat like scary trippy jump cuts and stuff like that just the general tone of the two they're they're different but they you can you can kind of see the fingerprints of the same artist in both so american horror story was allegedly inspired by ryan murphy's childhood obsession with the film don't look now and the tv show dark shadows there's also a lot to be said about ryan murphy not wanting to write more um, or do more work for the production of Glee. Um, <laughs> while speaking with Julia Roberts for an interview, Murphy remarked, American Horror Story came about because I was like, I can't write any more nice speeches for these Glee kids about love and tolerance and togetherness. I'll kill myself. So then I was like, I'm going to write a show about sex and mass murders. <laughs> Amazing. I kind of want to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about American Horror Story's very unique handling of season hints, uh, the hints that they lace into the show to clue audience members in on what the next season is going to be. Um, This is kind of very unique to American Horror Story. I mean, there are not really a lot of other shows that have the season-by-season anthology set up with such a strong theme the way that American Horror Story does. Some other shows have have followed in that model, but American Horror Story really has fun with it. Um, Ryan Murphy originally didn't announce that each season would be different until after Murder House had finished airing, but stated that this had always been the plan from the beginning. And he also stated that clues were built into the show to hint at what the next season's theme would be. So I took some time and I went through and did some research. I skimmed some episodes. I looked in a lot of different Reddit forums. And I found and have compiled for you a definitive list of the clues for each season. For each season in Murder House? No, for oh. for each season of American Horror Story. I'm gonna we're gonna do the whole the whole ten seasons right now. I'm gonna tell you every clue. All right. <laughs> I'm ready. So The clue for Asylum that appears in Murder House, actually during this episode and relevantly during the moment when when Billy Dean is telling Violet the Roanoke story, she talks about dark energy and dark spiritual energy in places of tragedy, quote, like prisons and asylums. So that's our Asylum clue. In Asylum, there's the jukebox in the main common room, and at one point a character plays the song I Put a Spell on You, which is a reference to Coven. In Coven, this is one that I, this is fascinating, and I have to send you the picture because I had never known this before and I never caught it, and I'm so fucking impressed by it. In Coven, so Myrtle Snow, she gets executed twice. During the second execution, right as she catches fire, it cuts to like an aerial shot right from above of her catching fire, the two like guard people for the coven standing behind and then the rest of the coven standing in front of her. And if you turn that shot on its side, it is a distinct clown face, which is a reference to Freak Show. 
into Twisty. Wow. Yeah, I... Oh, here. I'm sending it to you now. Obviously, they won't see this, but I highly recommend you look it up because it's impressive. Oh, dang. Isn't that cool? And then the second after that, that pops up on screen, it's um, the red nose and everything, and then she catches fire. So it's <laughs> the clown's nose burns, but the shadow and everything. Oh, what is the word? Like, that's so, like... I mean, that's, it's like it's that's, so subliminal. I know, like, like maybe that's the word I'm looking for. It's like it's such a subtle clue, but it's so intentional. Yeah, and it's so distinct, and like you can't unsee it once you've seen it. But I, I have watched Coven over and over and over again, and I've never caught that before. So I thought that one was pretty interesting. Um, skipping ahead to Freak Show. After Jimmy and Maggie are rescued from Twisty's clutches, uh, they meet with the police, and there's a prolonged shot of a coffee cup being held by one of the policemen right before it's given to Emma Roberts' character, and there's a top hat on it. This is one of the more obscure clues, but it was confirmed by Ryan Murphy. It is a reference to the film Top Hat, which is a musical film that takes place inside a grand hotel. So that's our hotel reference. Another very subtle clue. Just, yeah, you really have to be inside baseball to kind of get that one, I think. Exactly. The The clues during hotel are a little more subtle and a little... More subtle? Less concrete. Yeah, and a little less concrete. People have pointed out that there's a scene where Iris, played by Kathy Bates, arms herself with a meat cleaver, which is thought to be a reference to her character, The Butcher. Mm-hmm. in Roanoke the other one is Billy Dean's TV show at the end of Hotel where she she goes in and explores because then we later see another iteration of her TV show at the end of Roanoke in the final episode she interviews Adina Porter's character oh. on her TV show so those ones are a little a little more subtle I, I also think I mean in my re- research I read and yeah, I guess correct me if I'm wrong. That Ryan Murphy intended to to do Roanoke much sooner than he than he did. So it was originally meant to be season three. So I wonder if, because as we talked about this episode, we get a very less subtle clue to what what other kinds of things Ryan Murphy wants to look at as far as the horror mm. genre is concerned. In Roanoke, Dennis O'Hare's character. Uh, in one of his, his, he plays the professor who was previously in the house and was like starting to dig into everything that happened. Um, in one of his rants that he does on videotape, he references the Manson cult, which is the cult reference. During cult, the cult members chant Ave Satanis, even though there's nothing else satanic about the cult, but that's a reference to uh, Michael and the Satan aspect of Apocalypse. Kai gives a speech at one point about bringing about the end of the world, and Beverly makes a comment about the devil rising out of hell and burning everything to the ground. Moving ahead to Apocalypse, uh, during the scene where Michael goes into the woods, he there's this moment where he he like draws a pentagram on the ground, and then he starts hallucinating all this random shit. Like he sees an angel, and he sees uh, Mrs. Mead, but she's talking with a Russian accent or like with an accent to reference. The, the exorcist randomly for no reason. But one of the other things that he sees is a child who offers him a grape Fanta, which feels so random in the moment. But Fanta was a huge, huge soda in the eighties and the packaging on the can of grape Fanta is the eighties packaging. So that is the 1984 reference. 
And then lastly, in 1984, during the last episode, there's that reporter who tracks down uh, Brooke and Donna and, and is like, I know who you are and you can either, and they, they like offer to tell her everything so that she won't turn them in. She makes a comment when she first meets them in the diner about how during the 70s, all readers were interested in reading about were monsters and aliens, which is the double feature of season 10. So it is yet yet to be seen what clues specifically went into season season 10 that'll reference season 11. However, we do kind of have a much better idea going into season 11 what the theme is going to be because couple months back, Ryan Murphy did that poll on social media where he was basically, it was, it was a poll to see what the next theme, if the theme for season 11 was going to be. And the finalists were Bloody Mary and Sirens. And while the winner was not announced, there was a, a moment in Double Feature where uh, Spencer, who was the, the mediocre singer who ended up becoming the first pale person, uh, after he takes the pill and while he's craving blood, he comes to the bar and demands a Bloody Mary. So a lot of people have thought that that is confirmation that Bloody Mary is going to be the next season, which I have a lot of questions about because I want to know what what Bloody Mary they're doing. Are they doing like the Bloody Mary urban legend? Are they doing the actual historical story of Bloody Mary? Because that didn't take place in America. I'm very interested to see what that means. But But yeah, that's... A comprehensive look at the the clues that have referenced each season. I don't. I you know while it is American Horror Story, um, I mean, and I think this would be the first time if if he does take that historical approach, it would be the first time that a non-American story has headlined American Horror Story. But I will say Ryan Murphy has never been stopped. Um, by the boundary of American horror story or the or the American horror genre, um, like the first thing that comes to my mind is like Anne Frank. He just yeah he yeah, just yeah. plucked that you know like um we're we're get ready for season two in Asylum because like Nazi experimentation like he was just like hmm, world a horror bit today. everything yeah. But man, it would be really cool to see what he does with either of those topics. You know, I I think that Bloody Mary, I think, kind of speaks to, I don't know, the more traditional horror, I guess. And and also, I mean, that in that childhood influence too. We've talked a lot about where where these fears, where our personal fears come from, is these really pivotal moments of our childhood. And I don't know about you, Nathan, but I have never said Bloody Mary three times in a mirror in the dark. Never. Not once. I'm not. I have absolutely no urge to try. <laughs> like, it it never crosses my mind. Maybe now it's the time. Like, it, I'm good. I know nothing will happen. I still do not even want to have the <laughs> experience of attempting. That is one thing that I definitively don't want to be wrong about. <laughs> <laughs> and then Sirens. I mean, also not exclusively an American horror theme. I would be interested in Sirens, especially because I believe it's Evan Peters is the one that that says for seasons now he's been asking, I think, for for space horror because (laughs) he thinks that something akin to Alien where it's about being confined in a ship like that and about how 
but being confined with the horror in a space like that and not having a way off um, or a way out adds to it and adds to the paranoia of the characters. And some people on, you know, Reddit boards and stuff like that have pointed out that if they were to do sirens, it could take place exclusively on a ship, on a boat, on a ship, which I would love. I would love that. Yeah, you do have a very pirate vibe, Nathan. <laughs> I have a pirate vibe? <laughs> I do have a, a fascination for shipwrecks. I, I'm sure I'll be there will be some episode in the future where I'll be talking at length about some haunted shipwreck because I have a, a deep fascination for shipwrecks. So Thank you for joining us this week. We hope that you enjoyed learning about the American horror genre and the horror history that inspired it. If you'd like what you heard this week, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on TikTok at Filthy GD Horror Show, Instagram at Filthy GD Horror Show, and on YouTube. You can also email us your questions and suggestions at filthygdhorrorshow at gmail.com. Please consider donating to our featured charity this week. Links to that can be found in the episode description. The show isn't sponsored by this or any other organization. We'd just like to shout out good people doing good things. And tune in next week for our season finale, where we will be exploring episode 12 of American Horror Story Murder House on...